Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 114. Cue up the nuke Lelouch. I love winning, man. I love winning. You hear what I'm saying? It's like better than losing. It is. It is better. I don't know what this win that the Packers got on Sunday means for the future. I don't know if we got enough out of Jordan Love to say he's the guy going forward. I don't know anything. That's just where we should end the podcast. All I know is I enjoy watching my favorite football team win on Sunday. I enjoy it even more when I win money on it. And I don't know how seriously we have to take what this means for the rest of the year. We will talk about it. It's just nice to talk about a win. Is there value in a young team learning how to win? Yes, there is. They beat the Rams 22-3 at Lambeau Field. I saw tickets at Lambeau 25 minutes before kickoff yesterday. We're going for $26 at Lambeau on Sunday afternoon. But it is a win. The Packers get to 3-5. and five. We'll break it all down. The offsides calls on the offensive line. Jordan Love's game. Good look from the young secondary. We'll talk about all of that. Aaron Jones got his 15-plus touches, and the Packers won. We'll also discuss the Badgers on the flip side of the coin. Just an ugly, ugly loss. Possibly one of their most ugly losses in the last 30 years. That maybe sounds dramatic, but I don't think it is. At Indiana, a winless Big Ten team. Badgers look punchless. They look like they were sleepwalking. Not a good look for the program. Not a good look for Luke Fickle, in all honesty. I think he's still the guy, but not a good look on Saturday at Indiana. The Bucks got a win in the in-season tournament pool play kickoff on Friday. The defense looked a lot better. They made some adjustments. They are at Brooklyn tonight. College basketball starts tonight, and it sounds like we should have a Craig Council decision as it relates to his future with the Brewers or whatever team he could be going to by the end of business on Tuesday. Brewers also swing a trade over the weekend. We'll talk about that, too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard! Yes! The Brewers win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit to center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's hard! And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle foul throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. All right, everybody, welcome to a victory Monday. We haven't said that in about six weeks, five weeks, at least five weeks. It's also the first Monday after a fallback weekend. We got an extra hour, but I'm sure everyone a little cranky here on your Monday morning, especially, I would think, toddlers, young kids, babies that are very much on their sleep schedule, morning show DJs that are very strict about their sleeping regimen. It is affecting me more as I get a little bit older. I know I'm not old. We are pushing 40 officially now at 39 years old. I am noticing, though, as the years go by, the spring forward fall back jockeying is affecting me more than it ever did. I'm certain it affected me when I was a kid. I'm sure my parents will tell you when I was a toddler or a six-year-old. I think it really does throw those young kids off kilter. 
But I don't ever remember feeling uneven after daylight saving time came into effect, spring forward, fall back. When I was in middle school or high school or college, got college the fall back weekend. I'll never forget the first year I was in Stevens Point at the bar. I was 21 years old, of course. And it dawned on me that when the clock falls back at 2 a.m., does that mean we get an extra hour of bar time? And it did. And the whole bar I was at, every time we would do that for fallback weekend, we'd all celebrate. We'd count down like it was New Year's. And the bartenders would gently weep <laughs> in the corner. Oh, good. I get to make another $6 in tips for the next hour. Awesome. Oh, a 25-cent tip. Cool. Thanks. I remember really looking forward to fallback weekend. Obviously, you hate when you get dark outside now at whatever it's going to be today, 4.30. It's going to be dark in two hours, it feels like. It's going to be dark at 4.30 today. I did see an interesting graphic. We had it on the B93 Morning Show today. I stole it from CBS 58. They had the graphic on Saturday that broke down what it would look like if we stayed permanent standard time, which we're in now, or if we went to permanent daylight saving time. There was a bill, wasn't it? A sunshine bill that maybe passed the Senate but didn't pass the House of Representatives. It sounded like we were going to get rid of one of them and we were going to just pick one and stick with it, which a lot of people in the B93 Facebook comment section, before they would decide, the question was, which would you prefer? Would you prefer permanent daylight saving time or permanent standard time? A lot of people in the comment section said, I don't care, just pick one. Let's just pick one and settle on it. But CBS 58 had the graphic of what sunrise and sunset would look like in January and June if you went permanent daylight saving time or permanent standard time. Daylight saving time won in a route because daylight saving time in June, the sunrise is like 5.15 and the sunset is still around 9 o'clock. It's around 8.40 or 8.35 or whatever it is. And in standard time, the sunrise in June would be almost 4 a.m. You'd see the sun coming out, and the sunset would be 7.35. We wouldn't get in permanent standard time. We would not get those 8.30, 8.45, 9 o'clock sunsets in summer. The downside of permanent daylight saving time, which I don't care so much about, is that in January, the sunrises would be at about 8.30 in the morning. That is a little late in the day. Sunsets, though, would be 5.30. I think the argument against permanent daylight saving time has always kind of been about the kids. Won't somebody think of the children? Where if you're walking to school or waiting for the bus, you don't want it to be pitch black out there if you're a parent of a young kid. And it would be pitch black out there, like I said, until about 8.30 in the morning, probably 9 a.m. in the western part of the county. That seems to be the number one argument against daylight saving time becoming permanent. Most people in the comment section, though, were very pro daylight saving time. I'd say 80 to 20% permanent daylight saving time over permanent standard time. And then you had the few in there that said, I don't care. Just pick. Just pick one. I don't care where we eat. I'm just hungry. What are you hungry for? I don't care. Just pick. Anyway, it is the Monday after a fallback weekend. I'm sure plenty of groggy people out there. But it is a victory Monday. Hey, the Packers got it done. It was really ugly. It was one of those games for the first almost three quarters where it was 7-3. to three, And it just felt like two bad teams in a slap fight. It was tough to watch. I started doing chores. I started cleaning, started raking up some leaves, kind of listening to it in the background. I had to do something. After about the first quarter and a half, I thought, I can't just sit here like this. This is terrible. This is bad football. Packers finally got it together and looked like an actual football team, kind of, by the end of the third quarter, fourth quarter. I think I hit my rock bottom and I started mopping the kitchen floor. I think I hit my rock bottom after the Aaron Jones fumble. 
It was 7-3 to three at halftime, and then on the first play of the second half, Dontavian Wicks, who had a pretty good game, he had that catch for a first down. It was an 11-yard pickup, and as he was trying to reach out for the first down marker, he fumbled it. It was picked up by the Rams player. I thought, oh, my God, how does that happen? And then the defense gets a stop. Packers get the ball back. Aaron Jones about to cut it back for a nice 10 to 15 yard gain. Then he fumbles it and turns it over. And the Rams again get possession deep in Packer territory. Still a 73 game. After that fumble, that was about enough for me. I thought, I got to do something else. I have to multitask here. I simply cannot let my life waste away watching this NFL football game, even though my favorite team is in it. Watching this and not getting anything else done for the entirety of today. That's when I started cleaning, and I got a lot done between that play and when things kind of got together mid-fourth mid quarter, late third quarter, early fourth quarter. They do get a win, though, and to me there were some things to like. The defense overall was good. You would expect it to be against Brett Rippon. I don't know that anybody is throwing any kind of parade for Joe Barry or complimenting Joe Barry about holding a Brett Rippon-led offense to three points. That's what you have to do, though. That team didn't look at any point like it was going to threaten to score a touchdown. Packers didn't let it happen. What that means going forward or what this defense could look like against a more competent offense, which I'm not sure they're going to see in Pittsburgh so much this weekend. Kenny Pickett's about as bad as there is in the NFL, too. The defense did what they had to do, though. Held a team with no real weapons and no real running backs and no quarterback, essentially, to three points. And they did do that with four of their preferred starters on IR, the Packer defense, four of their preferred starters on IR. You just traded Rasul Douglas, and Carrington Valentine slotted in there beautifully. If you're going to glean any kind of silver lining off of an ugly game, especially on defense, I'd say the young secondary pieces played pretty well. You have to take it with a grain of salt because of the quarterback they were playing. Carrington Valentine, the seventh-round pick, in for Rasul Douglas. Anthony Johnson Jr., the seventh-round safety pick, in for the injured Rudy Ford. Something about that number 36 safety, right? There's just a little something about number 36 in the secondary for the Packers, both Butler and Collins. I'm not saying he's going to be those guys. It's just something about seeing a safety wearing that number and making plays. They both played well. Valentine was locked down. They couldn't get any pass completed to his side of the football. He did it without getting a P.I. Anthony Johnson Jr. had the pick after the Jair Alexander tip. Jair Alexander had a good game on Sunday as well. Jonathan Owens, Mr. Simone Biles, he was good too. He had eight tackles. He had the strip sack, that forced fumble early in the game. There were young pieces that performed very well on Sunday defensively against a offense that had one or two hands tied behind their back, but they did what they had to do. Imagine if we went out there and Brett Rippon threw for three touchdowns and no picks against the Stevens. Then you've got a really big problem. A bunch of seventh round picks from this past year's draft more than held their own, and the defense held that team to, what, 180 yards, 185 yards? Didn't even get chewed up on the ground, which even when the defense has been performing okay, it seems like they still give up a lot of yards on the ground. They did not do that on Sunday. They did their job for the most part. On offense, Aaron Jones touched the ball more than 15 times, and they won. Is that a coincidence? No. And he didn't even really have a good game by his standards. He touched the ball 24 times, most touches he's gotten since last year of the same week, I want to say, when the Packers won in overtime against Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys at Lambeau Field. He touched the ball 26 times in that game, 24 times on Sunday. He was under four yards of carry rushing, but he accounted for about 100 yards. He had a touchdown. Good to see him get back in the end zone. Packers are now 36-2 and in Aaron Jones' career when he gets 15 touches or more. They got him the ball. And, hey, getting Aaron Jones the ball more 
helped open things up for A.J. Dillon, too. Dillon had a solid game. It carries 45 yards. He was over four yards a carry. Emmanuel Wilson late had a really nice run. He had 40 yards on the ground. Overall, the Packer running game, 34 carries, 184 yards, almost five yards a carry. And Jordan Love had one of his best games, his, really his best game since week two. Is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. For a really young quarterback with a bad offensive line and a young wide receiving core, getting that running game going not only gets the offensive line going, it eases the pressure on Jordan Love a bit and those young wide receivers where everything has to be so precise. There's some room for error when you're picking up decent yards on the ground, which the Packers did. And, hey, that Rams offense is a disaster. The Rams defense still features Aaron Donald. They have some real players in that front seven for the Rams defense. So you can look at this final score and say, well, they beat Brett Rippon and the Rams really had no chance to score points. And that's fine. If you want to assess the game that way, I'm not going to cast a stone in your direction. I get it. This was, in all likelihood, a bad Packer team being in, beating an even worse Rams team, beating a badder Rams team. That's At the end of the day, that's likely what we're looking at. I guess we'll find out as the weeks go forward here if we actually saw some real improvement. I'm not sure how much you can glean from Sunday's victory in terms of steps forward or who wants to be here next year or anything like that. However, that Rams defense is not without talent. And the Packer offense got the job done on the ground. And Jordan Love did play his best game since week two. Take that as you will. He had 20 of 26. Everybody's been up in arms about his accuracy. Best accuracy rating of the year, 78% completion percentage. 228 yards in the air, keeping on pace for the overbet for 3,350. He's actually well above that pace. He needed 198 yards a game to match that pace, that futures bet we have on total yardage, passing yards for him this year. He's averaging like 220 in the air a game. Don't knock on wood, but right now he is pacing to probably have a 35 or 3,600 yard passing year. He had 228 yards, one touchdown. And no turnovers. Did he miss throws? Absolutely. He missed another deep throw early in the game to Christian Watson, where Watson had his man toasted. Would have been an easy touchdown if he's hit in stride and the ball is released when it should be. That was a big miss. He had that pass over the middle to Malik Keith that was low. That could have been a big gainer. Malik Keith still has to catch that ball. He had two hands on the ball nobody around him. The pass, though, needed to be better. If he hits him in stride, Heath probably runs for 10-plus yards after the catch and makes it about a 30-yard gain. That was a miss. The deep ball that Christian Watson did catch late in the game that got him hurt, his one catch. He had one catch and he had three injuries. Isn't that Christian Watson's career so far in a snapshot? A spectacular 37-yard catch where he fought for the ball finally, reeled it in, and then he left the game. And I had to chuckle when I went on Twitter and I saw Rob Demosky post that Aaron or that uh, Watson had a back injury, a chest injury, and was being evaluated for a concussion. That's the one catch to three injury ratio. I don't love that. That ball was not really on the money, but they were able to make it work, and his wide receiver came back to get it. That's another one where you'd like to see him lead a receiver a bit. I do wonder about Jordan Love in the preseason and in camp. There was a lot of discussion about Jordan Love's deep ball not having enough air under it. It seems to me, as a podcaster, so you can take my word for it, as an NFL, as projecting an NFL quarterback, it seems to me they worked very hard on getting him to get air under the ball, and he's doing too much of it. The ball is just hanging up there, and it's just not hitting guys in stride. You'd almost like to see him flatten that out at this point. I think that was a point of emphasis for the Packer coaching staff in training camp and in the preseason to get him to put more air under the ball, and to me it looks like he's overcompensated, and that's a part of the reason for the inaccuracy downfield. 
But he does get that completion to Watson. And then the touchdown pass was brilliant. That was a brilliant play call. Well executed. Well practiced. Love sold both pump fakes to the flat and to the far side. And then hit Musgrave on a strike. Musgrave was wide open. But you've got to make the pass. He put it right on the numbers where Musgrave caught it in stride for the touchdown. You may still come out of that game saying that Jordan Love is not the guy. I don't under, I still don't understand the portion of the fan base that seems obsessed with writing Jordan Love off, even though the best-case scenario for the Packers is for Jordan Love to figure it out and be good. And we're all Packer fans, and we all want them to win, and we all want them to win Super Bowls. The best-case scenario is for him to be good. The worst-case scenario is he's not the guy, then Sean Clifford's not the guy, and we're all the way back to the drawing board. There are plenty of fans out there this morning, too, that are upset they won because it means they're a step further away from a top-five pick or a top-three pick that could be Caleb Williams or Drake May or whatever. Best-case scenario is still that Jordan Love gets better, and he got better on Sunday. The numbers unequivocally are better than they had been the prior four weeks. It's his first quarterback rating over 100 since week two. He was at 115.5. The QBR numbers aren't that good. Still, though, given the issues he's had, the accuracy was better. He didn't turn the ball over, and the team got a win. Wide receiving core-wise, outside of the fumble, which was just a weird play, Dontavian Wicks looked pretty good. Four catches for 49 yards. He continues to develop. Luke Musgrave, three catches, 51 yards, and the touchdown. There was that drive, too, that ended in a field goal where Love hit two nice passes, 15-plus yards. What's weird about Love right now is his best accuracy rating is on throws outside of the hash toward the sideline in that 15, that 10 to 15 yard range, which if you listen to any quarterback coach or any quarterback that's played the game at a high level, the college level, at the pro level, that's one of the tougher passes. That seems to be his most comfortable passes, that 10 to 15 yard toward the sideline. And he had two of them on that drive that did end up short circuiting and ending up in an Anders Carlson field goal. Romeo Dobbs, okay, three catches, 36 yards. We said Jordan Aaron Jones had the four catches to go along with the 20 carries. Josiah DeGuara had a catch in there as well. And the Packers ultimately get a 20-3 win. Yes, it does hurt their draft pick status. That debate is happening on Packer Twitter right now. We talked about that on Friday. I simply can't root for this team to lose, even if that is the best-case scenario for the future of the franchise. Getting higher draft picks, getting two to three to four picks in the top 75 and hitting on a few of those. I cannot root for that. The win does hurt them in terms of draft status. I think there is value, though, in a young team learning how to win. Look, if you think this team stinks, and they may stink, and they have stunk, they got a win on Sunday against a really bad team. Even if you think this team stinks, a lot of these guys are going to be back next year, everybody. I hate to tell you, this is a lot of the key players on this team, especially what we saw on Sunday in the secondary. These are all 2022 or 2023 draft picks. They are not going to be cutting bait on a lot of these guys into next year. They're going to add more rookies, obviously. Maybe they make a move or two, or a veteran gets cut loose, and they try to supplement it somehow. I don't know this team is going to look a lot different. If I were a betting man, and I am, Jordan Love has shown probably the front office enough to this point that they're going to give him a chance next year unless something crazy happens in the next nine games. It feels very likely to me that Jordan Love is going to be your quarterback next year. The wide receiving core is going to be a year older, but coming back together, this team is not going to look a lot different this year than it does this year. For that reason, winning is not necessarily a bad thing. A young team with guys that are 22, 23, 24 years old, yes, you would love to get a higher draft pick to add more talent to what you have. This team needs to learn how to win, though. Jordan Love needs to be on the field at Lambeau Field soaking in a W. 
The wide receiving room has to know what it's like to make key catches late to ice a game. The offensive line, as young as it is, has to figure out how to make the blocks to protect their quarterback or to run the game in the final four or five minutes to run the clock out. They have to learn how to do these things. And they were able to do that on Sunday. Yes, it was against a bad Rams team. There is not nothing, though, involved with closing a game out and getting a win for a team that is the youngest in the NFL. I know people are sick, too, of the youngest team in the NFL. People view that as an excuse. I had that on the Green and Gold Fan Zone Facebook page. I think it was after the Wicks fumble or after the Jones fumble. I put up there a young team just can't seem to get out of its way. And we had a couple people on there say, I'm so sick of the young team excuse already. That's fine. If you're sick of it, you're sick of it. Young teams, though, young players do need to learn how to win at some point. Even if your goal is a higher draft pick, these guys are going to be the cornerstones of your team for at least the next year or year and a half. They need to learn how to win games, and they were able to do that on Sunday with the 20-3 win. Packers are 3-5 and five with injuries coming out of it. Good news, though. Kenny Clark left the game, did not return. He left on a cart. It sounds like he is going to be fine. It didn't seem like anybody was too worried about a long-term injury there. And then what was the other injury that we were concerned about? Oh, Watson. Watson was not allowed to talk to reporters because he was in concussion protocol. That's an NFL rule. Apparently, though, according to a couple of beat reporters, he came back into the locker room at the end of the game. Preston Smith asked him, are you good? And he said he was good. Hopefully that's the case because you just you'd hate to see him finally make a big catch like that, fight for the football, which is what we talked about on Friday and Monday's podcast last week. He does that, and then he gets hurt, and it just continues the narrative of injuries being the number one thing that seemed to be undermining Christian Watson. Hopefully that report is true, and hopefully he will be good heading into this upcoming weekend. What can you glean from this? I think it is good that they won a game and the young team learned how to win a game. I don't know that we're saying this is going to turn the season around. I mean, you beat one of the worst teams in the NFL that's injury depleted on top of everything. Matthew Stafford, if he's in for the Rams, you think the Rams win this game? Probably. Or at least it's a lot tighter. It's a one-possession game. Packers were able to pull away late. If Stafford plays for the Rams and he's hitting Cooper Cup up and down the field the way that Rippon could not seem to get the ball to one of the top wideouts in the NFL, if Stafford's in that game, it could be a loss. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, it probably is a loss. You beat the team that was on the field, the only team that you could play on Sunday, you got to win. I don't think anybody's talking about turning this season around and winning eight or nine games. Nobody's using the P word, I don't think. Just nice to win one. As Kevin Malone once said in the office, it's just nice to win one. Was that after the parking lot episode where they got their parking spots back? It's just nice to win a game, and they did that. They get set for Pittsburgh this coming weekend. We'll learn a lot more. You're on the road. The Steeler defense is very good. The Steeler offense is not good. Kenny Pickett. I'm not saying he's Brett Rippon. He's probably better than Brett Rippon, but Kenny Pickett is no better than Jordan Love is at this point, if that's what you're using as a measuring stick. I would think or hope the Packer defense could perform similarly this weekend. The line opened as the Steelers minus three. I thought it would be more. Steelers are four and two, right? Or five and three. And the Packers are three and five. Three points is home field, and that's about it. Packers will be in Pittsburgh, a noon kickoff coming up on Sunday. But a victory Monday. They did it. They can do it. They can win a game, everybody. All right, let's talk about the Badgers. The opposite side of that coin, awful. Awful. You could make a strong argument that that loss on Saturday is one of the worst losses in program history in the last three decades. I'd have to go back to the 92 Alvarez year and the 91 Alvarez year. Was that his first year? They were still bad that first year. I don't think that they were good instantly under Alvarez. I think there was one year in there where they were still a two- or three-win team. If you go back to 92 or 93 and you look at all the games in there up until this past Saturday, I'm certain there are similar losses. I don't know how many are this bad, though. Indiana did not have a Big Ten win. 
Indiana does not even rank as a top 100 team in Division I football. If you just go based on that, this loss is worse than the Illinois loss last year, even though most people look back at that Illinois loss and see it as a program bottom of the barrel, a bottoming out where Chris got fired and you had to hit the reset button. In terms of the teams that were on the field and the talent gap between them, this past Saturday's loss was worse than the Illinois loss at Camp Randall last year. I just don't understand how you don't come out with a little more fire in that game. They looked like they were sleepwalking. They didn't look locked in. I don't know how that could happen with a team like this, with a first-year head coach at the program, coming off of two games where you came back in the fourth quarter at Illinois and were able to get a win there, and then you used that momentum heading into Ohio State. Ohio State right now with the college football playoff rankings, the number one team in the country, and you were tied with them at 10 midway through the third quarter last week, and it was a 17-10 to 10 game entering the fourth quarter. You were in that game pretty much the entire way. To take those steps and then to perform the way they did against Indiana is a head-scratcher. Just couldn't tackle anybody in the first half. Defense was bad in the first half, and the defense got it together in the second half, played much better, gave the Badger offense numerous opportunities to get in front. The Badger offense couldn't do it. Not playing complimentary football, not getting the offense and defense really in sync on Saturday, and it ends up being a 20-14 loss to one of the worst teams in Division I football. The best win Indiana had before that was against Akron. That's what we're talking about. And Indiana was able to get a win against this Badger team. Yes, you were down two backs. You're down Braylon Allen, who did not play. You're down Ches Malusi, obviously. He was out for the year a few weeks back. You're down to your third and fourth string running backs. You're starting a redshirt freshman quarterback, Braden Locke, in his third start. There are a lot of injury subplots to this. Still, the talent that was on the field on Saturday for the Badgers should have beaten the talent that was on the field for Indiana by at least a touchdown and probably by 10-plus points. That was the spread going in, a 10-point road favorite. They just never appeared disciplined. They never appeared locked in, which is hard to fathom for a team that is mostly young guys. And you have to look at the coaching staff. Look, we've used the road trip analogy for this first year under Luke Fickle where at the beginning of the year with all of the momentum and all of the enthusiasm and the soft schedule and the four- and five-star recruits coming in, we didn't think this was going to be a long rebuild. We were coming off of how many games did they win last year? Seven games. They won a bowl game. We're not too far removed from this Badger team being a year-in, year-out, 9-10 to 10 win team, sometimes 11-win team. It had tailed off in the last two or three years of the Chris era, but not that far to where you thought, okay, new head coach who had just been the college football playoff with a Cincinnati team, he's bringing in all this talent, an infusion of talent. This should not take long. This should be a decent year-in, year-one and then hopefully they take off and take a step forward in year two, three, and going forward for Luke Fickle. We thought we were maybe 20 miles, 10 miles from our destination when this road trip of the season started. And as we podcasted about, as you watch them play those early games, you immediately got the feeling of, oh, we're further away than we thought. This is going to take a little longer than we thought. We're probably 60 miles away from our destination, <laughs> 75 miles away from our destination. Then what loss was it where I felt like they weren't even in the car? <laughs> what loss was that one? That must have been Iowa? Had to be Iowa. After that performance, you thought, did we even get in the car? Have we even started the car? Do we even know where we're going? Then you get the comeback win against Illinois on the road, and your redshirt freshman quarterback performs well in his first start. And then against number three, now number one Ohio State, you hang in there. It's a one-score game in the fourth quarter in front of your home crowd. You feel like you're maybe making up some ground. Then to lose this game to this 
Indiana team, it's almost like you're starting over. It's almost like you're in the car and now you've pooped your pants and you need to go back to the house. We got to turn around. We got to go back. I need to take a shower. I need to change my pants. We need to set the clock and reassess where we're at. That's what this game feels like. And it is partially on the coaching staff. And I'm not saying that to say Luke Fickle's not the guy. Before the year began, I 100% felt like Luke Fickle was the correct hire and is was and is going to take this Badger program to great places. I still feel that way. He was the 100% right hire, even though with the way things have looked this year, you are now seeing people on Twitter say they should have stuck with Jim Leonard. Jim Leonard could be 5-4, and four, which is probably true. You should have stuck with Paul Christ. Paul Christ could have won that game on Saturday, which I also agree with, by the way. Paul Christ would have won that game on Saturday. The Phil Longo offense, which is very frustrating to watch right now, sometimes gets a little too intricate and gets away from what's working. Even with the third and fourth string running backs, they were picking up decent yards on the ground. If that's Paul Chris coaching that game, they run the ball. How many times did they run the ball on Saturday? 28 times for 101 yards, almost four yards carry. If that's a Paul Chris coach team in the exact same situation, they probably run the ball 45 times and they end up somehow winning that game by a field goal or by a touchdown. Because they get a little too cute with the Phil Longo air raid, the dairy raid, they got away from the running attack. Braden Locke was not accurate. Even though the raw numbers for Locke, two touchdowns, he didn't turn the ball over, two touchdowns, no picks. 21 of 41 and made bad decisions and errant throws at critical moments. Because of the new coaching staff and the way the offense is run under Longo, that does play a role in why they lost. I do think Jim Leonard or Paul Chris probably would have won that game because they would have run the ball 50 times and just found a way to grind Indiana into dust and win that game 20-13. to 13. They end up losing, and you have to look at the coaching staff. Luke Fickle is the right hire. This team is going to get it together in, I don't know now. <laughs> I want to say next year. We're probably three or five years down the road where he's going to get this team back to being a 10-win team, a 9-10 to win team, and then hopefully once the college football playoff gets expanded, the team that's going to battle for a college football playoff spot when we get to how many teams is it going to be now, 8 or 10 or 12, whatever it is. We are going to get there, I believe. I still 100% believe that. You can say that, though, and also say this season has been at minimum a disappointment. I don't want to use the F word. I don't want to use a failure word. It has been a disappointment, and the coaching is a part of that. At this point in the season, you can no longer use the excuse of Fickle doesn't have his guys because we we talked about that early in the year. These are Chris guys. They're not all Fickle guys. He had to go to the transfer portal to supplement some of the gaps in talent, and this is really still Paul Chris doing. We are nine games into the year now. Luke Fickle got outcoached on Saturday. Luke Fickle got outcoached by a coach in Indiana that's going to be fired at the end of the year and maybe before the end of the year. I don't know if they're going to do that anymore. That was a signature win for him. In all likelihood, Indiana is moving on from their head coach at the end of this year, and he outcoached Luke Fickle on Saturday. That has to be noted in year one under Fickle. I still think we're headed in the right direction. Ultimately, it's going to take longer to get there. I do think Luke Fickle will bring this program to new heights that we haven't seen yet. It's going to take a lot of time, though, and you do have to with where we're at right now on November 6, 2023, nine games into year one. It's been a disappointing year one. The players have not lived up to expectations, and the coaching staff hasn't gotten the most out of the players that are on the field. Those are all facts. They are 5-4, and 3-3 three and three in the Big Ten. The over's dead. The over died. The over on eight and a half season wins, dead. 
At least they got done early. You know what I mean? They could have strung that out. They beat Indiana. They beat Northwestern. They beat Nebraska. And then it's ripped away from me in the battle for the axe, the final game of the year. At least there was no drama. There was no moment where now we think, oh, there's still a chance they're going to go 9-3 and three and hit the over. That was taken away unceremoniously and quickly at Indiana on Saturday. 5-4, and 3-3. Three and, three. and now with that performance, all of these games are toss-ups. And we said that going into the weekend, too. We said they should be favored and can win all four of these games, but they're still going to be tight games. We said that on Friday's podcast. I didn't expect it to be a tight loss on Saturday. Now you have to look at these remaining games and say any one of these could be a loss. Any one of them could be a win. Any one of them could be a loss. They could just as easily finish this year 8-4 and four as they could 5-7. and seven. Northwestern, which has overcome a ton of on-the-field or off-the-field adversity, I guess, with the Pat Fitzgerald story and the hazing and all that, I didn't think they were going to win a game this year based on what all happened there. They have been frisky. They always give the Badgers problems. What is Northwestern's record? It's got to be similar. Are they 4-5? and five? Yeah. <laughs> They're only a game worse than the Badgers. It's at Camp Randall. Do we have a line on this game yet? It's a 2.30 kickoff. We do not have a line on it yet. Badgers will be favored probably by a touchdown or a little more. There's no game you feel comfortable with right now. At no point has this team been trustworthy against the spread this year ever. Nebraska, which lost at Michigan State. We lost that gambling pick. 3-2 and two on the weekend, though, between the NFL and college football. Nebraska is playing better. That's going to be a toss-up game. And then at Minnesota, that's probably for the Badger alumni in my life. I mean, I root for the Badgers like I went there. I didn't. I would think for the alumni, that's the only game you care about now, right? You'd love to see him win Northwestern. We're not competing for draft picks. We're not having the same debate about the Badgers that we're having about the Packers. There's no draft. There's no harm in winning games. Winning games probably helps the recruiting process. That, though, that last game, I think, is the last game that the that the alumni, the diehard Badger fan alumni really care about. They want to get that axe back to Madison. If you lose Northwestern, if you lose to Nebraska and you beat Minnesota, that would be the preferred result as opposed to winning these next two games and losing the battle for the axe. They're not bowl eligible yet either. Now, the question becomes, do you go with Braden Locke the rest of the way? Tanner Mordecai was in uniform, surprisingly, on Saturday. He was in warm-ups. No one seems to be expanding on or expounding on what his status is. Is he healthy enough to play? Could he be healthy enough to play before the end of the year? If you're looking to win games, it probably makes sense to get Mordecai back in there if he's healthy. Like we talked about a week or two ago, if you're looking to the future, Mordecai's not going to be here. Does it make more sense to give Brayden Locke three more starts just to add that to his muscle memory, to add that to his resume, and to figure out if he's going to be a guy that you want as your starter next year? Or do you get a look at Miles Burkett? Nick Evers, who was a four-star transfer from Oklahoma, he was the first big transfer that came during the first week of Luke Fickle that we were all excited about. He is buried on the depth chart right now. He must not look all that good. All reports out of Madison are that Braden Locke was the clear-cut number two based on training camp, based on practice performances. According to this coaching staff, he was the clear-cut number two over Burkett and over Evers. For that reason, if Locke is healthy, I don't know if we'll see Burkett or, or Evers at any point this year. That is an interesting question, though, for this team in the last three games and hopefully a bowl game. Do you just want to get as many reps, as many starts for Braden Locke as possible to figure out if you need to get another quarterback or if you're one of the incoming four- or five-star guys could be the guy as a freshman next year? Do you have to hit the transfer portal again? If you're looking to win games and get bowl eligible and get the axe back, I would think Mordecai is going to be the guy. We will find out, I'm guessing today, Luke Fickle at his Monday presser will have to talk about what Mordecai's status is and whether or not he has a chance to play for the remainder of the year. I'm guessing they're going to go to Mordecai. If I'm just guessing, 
it makes more sense for the future of the program just to keep looking at Locke, but they, if they want to win games, Mordecai would be the guy to me. Northwestern at Camp Randall, 2.30 kickoff on Saturday on the upcoming weekend. What else were we going to talk about? Oh, let's run through. I always forget to run through the NFL. Well, it's still football, right? We'll run through the NFL real quick. I know I previewed that on the last episode and then totally forgot to do it. Packers got their win. Chiefs got the Germany win over the Dolphins 21-14. That was a weird game. Chiefs had a 21-0 lead. Dolphins almost came back to tie that. How about Josh Dobbs and the Vikings? They pick him up midweek on the trade from the Cardinals. He doesn't get the start. He comes in halfway through the game. He doesn't even know his teammates' names. He doesn't know the signals, and he got it done. And they beat the Falcons 31-28. They are now 5-4. and four. They've won four games in a row. The Browns shut down the Cardinals 27-0. Looks like the Cardinals are on their way to a number two or maybe number one overall pick. Commanders beat the Patriots. Patriots are a top five pick right now. 20-17. That was at New England. The Bears and Tyson Bajant. He was okay for part of the game. Two touchdowns, three picks. My Saints get a win. This is big for the my NFC South futures bet. I thought that was dead. Saints beat the Bears 24-17. That combined with the Falcons' loss to Minnesota... And the Saints are in first place by a game. There's one more matchup looming with Atlanta. If they can win that, I may be on my way to cashing that ticket. 24-17 winners in New Orleans over the Bears. Ravens smoke the Seahawks 37-3. They look legit. Texans and C.J. Stroud. What a weird game that was, too. The Texans lost their kicker to injury halfway through that game. And then did you see Daria Gumbawale? The former Badger running back who has carved out a nice niche for himself in the NFL. I don't know that I saw that coming when he left college. He is an all-around athlete, one of those guys that could probably have played any sport. He now has a seven-year NFL career, and he kicked a field goal as a running back for the Texans, a 29-yard field goal, and he was handling kickoffs too. C.J. Stroud, though, I had him in fantasy. Five touchdowns, 470 yards. Texans got that 39-37 win over Tampa. Colts get a win in Carolina. Panthers on their way to maybe a number one pick, which they're going to have to give up to the Bears, 27-13. We won money on the Raiders, that interim coach, man. It never fails especially when it's a young guy not too far removed from his playing days, as was the case for Antonio Pierce and the Raiders taking on a bad Giants team. They kill him, 30-6. That was easy money. That was Raiders minus one. Eagles and Cowboys, 28-23. Hey, by the way, those offsides calls on the Packer offensive line, I've watched football for 40 years. I've maybe seen one time a year offsides called on the offensive line, let alone two in one game, both on quarterback sneaks for Jordan Love. It seems like the league is trying to litigate the Jalen Hurts tush-push play that the Eagles always run, that quarterback sneak with their quarterback Jalen Hurts, and then the running backs come up and push him forward for a yard when it's fourth and inches or fourth and a yard. It works every time. I think that call, that offensive line offsides call, is meant to litigate that play out of the league. What's weird is they call it twice in the Packer game, and I guess by the letter of the law, Maybe John Runyon's fingertip was over the backside of the football. That's what sets the neutral zone. The point on the football closest to the center, the back of the football, if your head or your fingertips or whatever are over that and you're not the center, then you're in the neutral zone, and that leads to that call. It's fractional. You could call it on every play. It's like traveling in the NBA. You could call that on every play, every NFL Sunday if you wanted to, which Again, further is my idea that I think they, they just want to litigate or deter teams from doing that tush-push quarterback sneak on fourth and one or fourth and inches. Then I watched the Cowboy-Eagles game, and the Cowboys did it with Dak, the Eagles did it with Jalen, and it's the exact same alignment, and nobody called it. They're trying to litigate it out of the league by calling it on John Runyon in the game nobody's watching. I don't understand that. If you're going to call it, call it in the game against the team whose signature play it is. 
didn't call it at all in that game. And both teams' quarterbacks sneaked and had guys way over the back end of the football on the offensive line. Eagles win over the Cowboys. They hang on 28-23, and then the Bills fall to 5-4. and four. Bengals, Joe Burrow. I am fighting every urge in my body not to make a Bengals future bet to win the AFC North. They were plus 330 still to win the division heading into yesterday. I don't know if that's changed or not. The Ravens look like a legitimate Super Bowl team, and they've already beaten the Bengals this year. Ravens are 7-2. and two. Bengals are 5-3. and three. They have one more matchup left. The Bengals are rolling, though. They've won four in a row, and Burrow looks healthy. Everybody looks healthy for that team finally. 24-18 winners over the Bills. Okay, let's touch on the Bucks real quick. They play their first in-season tournament pool play game on Friday. They hang on to win the Knicks 110-105. to 105. I finally had a chance to sit down and watch a full game after the meltdowns that I saw on Twitter following the Raptors' loss on Wednesday. Defense looked a lot better on Friday, and they adjusted. And Adrian Griffin said during the broadcast on ESPN that players came to him and said that they were using Brooke Lopez incorrectly. He was more of a roving defender in the first four games. He's best when he's near the rim, obviously, as a 36-year-old, seven-foot-one guy. You don't love him playing outside the paint too much. Being around the rim is what led him to finishing second in Defensive Player of the Year balloting last season. Players apparently came to Griffin and said, we need to find a way to adjust this defense so Brooke is closer to the rim. And they did that. And Griffin talked about that. They were interviewing him during the game after the first quarter. And he said, look, sometimes coaches think they're too smart. And the players came to me. They had a good idea. We went with it. And it's working. That's a credit to Griffin. It was fascinating to watch Bucks fans on Twitter react to him saying that. Some fans took it as, oh, Griffin's over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. The players have to tell him what to do. And the other half of the Bucks fan base, which I belong to, are all saying, this is what we need. The biggest knock on Budenholzer, especially in the playoffs, was that he did not adjust. He would refuse to adjust. He believed so much in his offensive and defensive systems that even when there were clear deficiencies, he refused to adjust. And Adrian Griffin, the new coach, is saying, I will listen to player input and I will adjust if I feel it's necessary. That's a good thing. That's good. If it's not working and the players have to point that out and they adjust and it works, that's all good. It was interesting to see the two different parts of the fan base, though, how they reacted to Griffin saying that. Well, they put Brooke Lopez near the rim. He had eight blocks on Friday night. It worked out. It paid off in spades. Bucks had a double-digit lead. They did give that away. It got tight late. Knicks got in front late. And then who stepped up? Dame Lillard. When you need a basket, Dame's the guy. And you can just tell early in the year, and finally I got to watch a full game front to back from opening tip to the end. You can just tell that Dame and Giannis right now do not know how to work with each other. Dame was always the alpha dog in Portland. Giannis has been the alpha dog in Milwaukee. Everything ran through Dame in Portland. Everything ran through Giannis in Milwaukee. And there's a feeling out process right now. Somebody's going to have to concede something, and they will, and they will figure it out. I don't think this is an issue of one player saying, oh, I'm not going to give up the reins on this team. This has been my team. Like, if you were Giannis, this has been my team for 10 years now. I'm not giving up the reins on this team. Or Dame saying, well, I'm clearly the better shooter of the two of us. I need the ball late. I'm here to take this team over. They'll figure it out. It's just going to take some time. They're five games into it. There were so many offensive possessions where Giannis would set a screen, then he wasn't quite sure what to do. Or Dame would be off in the corner. There were possessions where he wouldn't even touch the ball, which makes no sense, where he was being too passive. It's going to take time for these two guys who have been on their own kind of, not entirely, but mostly as the A player, as the 1A player, 
for almost 10 years plus, it's going to take them some time and some games and some reps and practices to figure out how they work together. They will get it figured out. It was obvious to me, though, on Friday, watching that game in its entirety, there were so many sets where Giannis would be dribbling at the top and Dame would kind of say, oh, do you want to give me the ball? No, okay, I'll go to the corner. Or Dame had the ball and Giannis was saying, well, do you want to set a screen? Should I roll? Should I pop? Well, what should I do? It's just going to take time for them to figure things out. They win 110 to 105. Now they're on the floor in Brooklyn tonight. They have a couple of road games this week, I believe. And they'll be in Brooklyn tonight, a 6.30 tip time. They are 3-2 and two going into that game. There's just a lot of nonsense out there right now at the beginning of the NBA year, especially with the Celtics starting 5-0 and about how they're rolling and the Bucks are up and down. It's just going to take time. Once Giannis and Dame get rolling, and they will figure it out, once they get rolling and they get comfortable with each other, this team is going to be a force. Maybe that'll start tonight. I don't know. You don't know how long it's going to take. It's just going to take some time. And real quick, college hoop starts tonight. We've got the number five team in the country, Marquette. Number five in the country. They are at home taking on Arkansas, or Northern Illinois, and the Badgers open as well. Badgers, I think they're going to be frisky. We talked about that either on last Monday or last Friday's podcast with the A.J. Store transfer. He adds a different dimension that this team has not had in a while in terms of athleticism and shot making. Wall and Crowell are back in your front court. You got another year with Max Klesman, another year with Chucky Hepburn. They've got a pretty veteran team now and a deeper team. They start their season at home with Northern Illinois at the Cole Center. Badgers play tonight at 7 o'clock. Marquette plays at 7.30. I can't believe we're getting into college basketball season. I'm calling my first game on Friday, Friday and Saturday. Can't believe we're here already. And then we'll end on the Brewers. It sounds like all of the rumors seem to indicate that Craig Council is going to make his choice. going to sit down like a high school football recruit with different hats, with a Mets hat and a Brewers hat and a Guardians hat. It sounds like he's going to make his decision before the end of tomorrow or Wednesday at the latest. He has come home. I assume there has been a meeting between him and Atanasio and Matt Arnold, and Council has reported back with the discussions he's had and the contract offers he's going to get. Like we talked about on Friday, my understanding is the Brewers are going to be given a chance to match whatever the contract offer that he has or the contract offers, plural, that he has. They'll have a chance to match that. If they don't, then he's going to have a decision to make about where he's going to go. It seems clear now that he is going to manage in 2024 and he's not going to be stepping aside to watch his kids play college ball which whatever that's his choice that seems obvious that that's managing is in the next season's future where that will be we're just not quite sure we'll see if he ends up leaving his hometown team that would be a sad way for things to end I have to admit that would be very sad hopefully the Atanasios do the right thing and they pay the hometown kid who is regarded as one of the top managers in baseball. They pay him what he deserves, what he is worth, and he stays in Milwaukee on a contract extension. We should find out the next couple days. Brewers do make a few moves, or I guess they made a move, and then a player made a move over the weekend. They traded Mark Canna. I was a bit surprised by that. Canna was the deadline acquisition. They picked up Canna and Carlos Santana. The offense was better. The offense was averaging 4.2 runs per game prior to the veteran bats of Canna and Santana getting to Milwaukee. After Canna and Santana settled in, they were averaging over five runs per game. So those two trades were worth almost a run per game on a team that was deficient offensively. That's a big number. And Canna was a large part of that. He hit 287, had five home runs, not a ton of power, 33 driven in, 10 doubles. His OPS was right at 800. Good numbers all the way around. He is about to be 36 years old. The mutual option was for $11.5 million. My speculation at the end of the year was it was a no-brainer to bring him back given what he produced while he was in Milwaukee, and that number is not huge for a guy that was putting those numbers up. $10 million for a veteran bat that gives you a professional at-bat almost every time he gets on base a lot. 
it seemed like a no-brainer, even though you have a lot of young outfielders that are coming up, and how far are we from seeing Jackson Churio? Will we see Joey Weimer back up at the major league level? Garrett Mitchell now and Sal Freelick. How would Canna fit in as a utility outfielder? Maybe as a first baseman, a DH? It just seemed like, given the production and the cost it would have had to bring him back for a year, I thought they'd bring him back. I was surprised they traded him. They get Blake Holub back from the Tigers. He is a double-A pitcher. Had eight saves last year, ERA a little over three. He's got a live slider and a good fastball. I think for the Brewer fan base, this looks like a cost-cutting move. And it can be two things. It could be a cost-cutting move where they didn't want to pay Canna $10-plus million dollars. It also could be that the Brewers look at Canna, say he's 36 years old. The spurt we got from him for two months is the best baseball that he's probably going to play. He'll likely regress back to a 240 or 250 batting average. That's his career number. And we don't want to pay 10 or $11 million for that. That's the choice. They get a double-A pitcher in return to help feed into that system. Wade Miley also opted out of his deal. That was a mutual option. He opts out. He will be a free agent. That starting rotation now is starting to look real dicey. You've got Woodruff, who is not going to pitch next year. Miley opts out. We don't know what they're going to do with Burns entering the final year of his deal. Freddie, you know, is going to be here. Aaron Ashby, if he profiles still as a starter, he's going to be here. Lauer's gone. Not that he had a good year last year, but he's no longer an option. He opted out. He is now a free agent. Things seem very in flux. We feel a long way removed from the blog and the podcast we did where I was urging the Brewers to take a 2011 approach and go all in, to not trade Adamas, to not trade Woodruff, to not trade Burns, all entering the final year of their deals, and to instead pick up a legitimate bat or two for the middle of the order and really go for it this year. Remember that? That feels like it was a year ago that we talked about that. That was like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Well, now with Woodruff being out for the entire year and Miley opting out and trading Canna, it is, and Council's future, it's starting to look very much like a year in flux, a transition year or maybe even a mini rebuild, unfortunately. Given the moves that we've seen, and we'll figure out what happens with Council this week. We'll come back after it on Friday. We'll be talking about that, I'm sure, when we have the Council decision. We'll talk about the week the Bucks had, the beginning of the college basketball season, and we'll set things up for Badgers Northwestern this weekend and Packers in Pittsburgh on Sunday. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you then.